Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Thursday. Looking down the pipe for today, there is some cause for cautious optimism across the grain complex today, as we did get a report very early on Thursday morning that a tentative deal has been reached between railroad unions and the freight railroads themselves. We're going to talk with Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition here in just a moment about what that deal might contain and whether or not it will end up coming to fruition. In segment two, we're going to be joined by our friend Dr. Jason Miller. He's a supply chain economics professor up at Michigan State University. Given the CPI data we had earlier this week, the PCE data, the unemployment numbers, and everything else that has been happening in the broad economy that's been impacting grain prices, Dr. Miller will jump on, give us his thoughts as this economy turns towards fall. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Arlen Suderman, chief commodities economist at Stonex. This morning, we saw the return of export sales reports from USDA. Arlen will bring us up to speed as to what we learned here over the past month. And we're going to close today's show with Brian Ernest. He's the lead protein economist at the Cobank Knowledge Exchange, and he has been keeping track of this resurgence in high pathogenic avian influenza, that bird flu that was an issue in the poultry industry earlier this year. It is coming back with a couple of cases already in the Eastern Corn Belt. Before we talk about all of that, though, let's focus in on this rail issue. We've been seeing this drive headlines all week long as these two sides have, well, tried to get to a, an agreement here before 12.01 midnight tonight, and it sounds like they might have made some progress. Mike Steenhook, Soy Transportation Coalition, what do we know about this tentative deal so far? Well, the the two parties, you know, worked throughout the night, and, and it, it was nice to wake up this morning to an announcement that the two parties have actually reached a tentative agreement. You know, Tentative means that they that the actual rank and file membership still has to ratify it, but they have come to an agreement which will prevent this potential strike or lockout that was looming over the U.S. economy and over agriculture. You know, starting just after midnight um, you know, tonight. So that's really good news. We're we're happy to see this tentative agreement. I I expect uh, that vote by the union membership will occur in the subsequent weeks um and i expect it to be to be affirmed and ratified and and so then what that's going to allow is uh u.s farmers to be able to proceed with doing what they do best and that's being the highest quality most reliable supplier of food on the planet and railroads are a big part of that and 30 percent of of u.s soybean exports get transported by rail so there's no simple way for soybean farmers to be profitable and successful without a functioning, reliable rail sector. So we're happy to see this agreement. And Mike, I think the important headline is this agreement effectively extends the cooling off period, right? Uh, as of now, the workers cannot go on strike because there is a tentative agreement at 12.01 tomorrow morning. Yeah, that's been that's been taken off the off the table, which is which is really healthy and Thing. And I, I, I have a you know anything can happen, but I have a really hard time envisioning a scenario where, you know, even with all of the frustration that you know, st- some of the railroad union members still have, they were were dis- dissatisfied with the terms of this agreement. They wanted certain, they wanted some additional things related to paid time off and scheduling and some of those those issues. I, you know, I, I concede that there's probably still some frustration. Um, in wanting and demanding more. I, I do have a hard time, though, seeing, um, particularly with the political dynamic that we're, we're on the eve of a, a midterm election, of having, going through another round of this in, in, in several weeks from now, I, I do expect to see the, the union members ratify it and kind of seeing it as kind of a, a, a stepping stone for them. That's kind of how I'm hearing it packaged to their to their membership as a stepping stone that they can build on uh, in in the subsequent years. 
Mike, I know it is all very fresh, but do we know how different this tentative proposal is from the proposal from the Presidential Emergency Board that was issued here a month ago? It's it's pretty consistent. I mean, the you know it, there may be some things that really in the weeds that I haven't seen yet, but the the big you know the big issue this the the, the wage increase where the the railroads originally were submitting a 17% pay increase. The unions count had a 31.3% recommended pay increase. The Presidential Emergency Board basically split the difference in offering, suggesting a 24% pay increase. And that's, again, over the five years of, of the contract. So it's a little less than a five-year salary increase or wage increase uh, annually. Um, the, the agreement, tentative agreement, uh, that was arrived at this morning abides by that 24 percent you know pay increase there there is a uh, an eleven thousand dollar kind of lump sum bonus on average that that uh, the workers will receive um but again a lot of it is really in the weeds about this paid time off and scheduling issues um that you know have been frustrating to railroad workers um you know particularly over the last couple of years in dealing with the the covid uh, pandemic but um it very is much is very consistent, you know, overall with the recommendations of the Presidential Emergency Board. All right. So we'll be watching, Mike. You expect that vote, it sounds like, here in the next two to three weeks before they get the chance to cast their ballot? I haven't seen a vote, a specific date announced. That's something I'm still, you know, scouring. The, 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 the word that I'm hearing is that I'm hearing over the next several weeks or in the upcoming weeks. So, um, so I, that's something that we're very much going to have our antenna up for and, and, and following very closely. Now, Mike, this past week, we did see some rail shippers uh, start to make some adjustments to their shipping schedule. Have you heard from many soybean shippers? Were there big changes this week that now they've got to come out of? Well, it, it is going to be. Fortunately, this inconvenience is, wasn't long lasting. But yes, there was a suspension of of service of particularly of you know, more toxic uh, materials and and you know things like fertilizer things like hexane that's a integral part of soybean processing so that will need to be restarted and then you know there was an increasingly a dial down of of all service in, you know, including grains fortunately that was very uh, very brief so hopefully um, you've Firing back up and getting back up to full throttle won't take very long. That was the real concern is that if the slowdown or strike were to proceed for a considerable period of time, restarting the rail industry is not like flicking back on your light switch. Uh, It takes a considerable period of time for it to get back up and fully operational. So we're very pleased that there was a, that this, the slowdown that was even occurring this week or the suspension of service was short-lived, and then we have this agreement. All right, we'll continue to watch this as it moves forward. As we get close to that vote, no doubt Mike Steenhook will be getting you back on and pick your brain as we see how this thing could end up as resolved. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up after this. We're going to talk with Dr. Jason Miller of Michigan State University when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Hi, this is Jeff Schmidt. I'm your Chief Agri-District Manager for Eastern Nebraska. I will be at Husker Harvest Days on Lot 430 on September 13th through the 15th. We'll be talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions that are designed to fit your operational needs. If you have any questions, give me a call, 308-440-8768, or check out our library of products at agra.chiefind.com. 
the average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, here to AOA on this Thursday. This past week, we have seen truly a huge amount of economic data dropped by the government here as we take a look at trying to figure out what's happening here in the U.S. economy. And the data continues to paint a very muddled picture. Over the past several months, we've been turning to Dr. Jason Miller. He's a supply chain professor, currently interim chair of the Department of Supply Chain Management there at Michigan State University. He keeps track of all of these issues and I think importantly for us in agriculture ties it in with that supply chain conversation, which is still running very, very hot. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us here this week. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, let's talk about the inflation data. 8.3% released CPI on Monday. Jason, did that surprise you at all to see it jumping up again here this past month? Not really. Um, everybody had been focusing so much on petroleum product prices, but not really realizing, I mean, you know, especially on the food side of things, um, you know, the commodity price drop that we saw really sort of July-ish, uh, we're already seeing that evaporate fairly quickly. I mean, we just saw that with the WASD report for Monday, right? Um, and then electricity prices are through the roof. And when you start thinking about food manufacturing, one of the biggest inputs is electricity. It is indeed. That is huge. And those prices have been climbing quite a bit this past year, up 15%, Jason? Yeah, well, and so the reading that came out yesterday was up 27% now, year over year. So electricity just keeps getting more and more and more expensive right now. 
And Jason, when we think about energy costs, we've heard this discussed a lot during the pandemic as crude oil was moving. Typically, energy costs can precede a recession. But then we get this other data, uh, unemployment, or excuse me, uh, we had retail sales up today. We have a uh, you know, number of job seekers down. There's still a lot of strength in the economy, isn't there? Yeah, so, and that's a great point. So literally we've had data just coming out this morning. The retail data was maybe slightly better than expected. When you adjust for inflation, we still see retail sales moving sideways, but they're still very elevated from where we would have expected to be at. You know, unemployment insurance claims um, and filings are still, you know, incredibly low from a historical standpoint. The industrial production data, um, essentially moved sideways in August from July on the seasonally adjusted basis. But what's important to keep in mind is July is a very weak month, um, and, uh, typically. Um, and so the seasonal adjustment is kind, whereas August is a very strong month. So moving sideways isn't even that bad of a thing. The New York Fed does a PMI type of survey for manufacturing that showed substantial improvement and September from August, I mean, that's a fairly small sample, but it, it really is right now very difficult to get a true sense of how the economy is doing. It is. Jason, is your sense that economic activity broadly is slowing from its, its recession goods purchasing fervor that we saw in 2021 and we just aren't seeing it reflected in the data as of yet? So I, certainly what we're seeing is the rate of growth from last year has, has slowing substantially, which is what we would expect. I mean, last year we were very much on a sugar high, but we were also coming out of the pandemic. Um, and essentially, I think, you know, we had so many constraints built into the system um, last year that we, it, it was just everything was so tight. Things have loosened up a little bit. Um, but it, it still doesn't seem like we're truly seeing the signs of a recession yet. We're just not, you know, we're not seeing that in terms of the job numbers, which is really where we would expect that to show up. It, it is. That's typically where you'd see that recession activity developing first, and it is still very strong. I want to ask you, Jason, looking out to next week, the Federal Reserve will be raising interest rates. The question is, how much? What's your sense on what the Fed should be doing next week? So given that 8.3% or 8.2% year-over-year CPI, that translates into the Fed's preferred inflation measure, um, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index going up probably 6.2 to 6.4% year over year, 75 basis points, here we come. All right, 75. So you're not concerned the market getting all jazzed about a one basis point. You don't think that's there. You trust the Fed on their 75 bip uh, jump next week. Yeah, I, I don't know where the one one basis point came out from. I think some of the concern is that we're starting to see you know, core inflation go up. But what I think is important to remember is things like housing prices and especially like apartment rentals, those tend to lag what the housing market's doing. And now that the housing market's cooling, we'll start to see that lag take place. You know, it, it, prices will come down. I just, I, I don't see them doing a one basis point move. One thing to just keep in mind though for everybody, the effective federal funds rate right now is around 2.3%. If we do 75 basis points, that brings us to 3%. Back in the late 90s, a great economic time, the federal fund, effective federal funds rate was over 5%. So we've had good economies with 5 6% interest rates. All right. So that is something to think about there as the Fed gets ready to act. Jason, I want to come back to really your, your true core area of expertise, looking at supply lines. As you think recession in the future, one of the places we see it, you mentioned labor market. We see hiring slow down, but we also see shipment of goods slow down in a recession as fewer people are buying things. So I want to get your thought, looking at the supply chain picture, trucking, rail, the works, are we still moving enough goods that you think the American consumer still has some some dry powder at, at hand? Uh, so th this is one where, again, you know, yesterday we had the uh, CAS freight systems. They audit freight bills about $40 billion worth a year. So a substantial, you know, amount. 
they, their August data had the second highest reading of all time after May of 2018. And that really sort of caught all of us by surprise. I mean, looking at the industrial production data that just came out today, you know, using not seasonally adjusted data, we're at essentially one of the highest readings recently, um, with August of 2022 being essentially the akin to August of 2018. Um, so it, it just it doesn't seem on the industrial side like we're falling into a recession just yet. And what sort of industrial activities are captured in that statistic, Jason? So that is everything, all mining activity and then manufacturing activity in every sector. So food, beverages, petroleum refining, chemical production, plastics, steel, aluminum, metals, farm equipment and machinery, motor vehicles, airplanes. I mean, you name it, it's in there. All right. So that is running very, very strong. Does that surprise you, given the strength we're seeing with energy prices? So it, it doesn't surprise me that U.S. manufacturing is, you know, doing reasonably well at the moment. I think in part one, anytime we have energy price spikes, that triggers a lot of additional fracking activity. And that is a tremendous driver of freight activity in this country. I mean, it really pulled us out of the Great Recession. So you've got that going on. You still have the motor vehicle sector having very low inventories to sales. We just will have gotten a data point about 15 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago. It's so recent, I haven't even up, it hasn't been updated yet um, for where that is. So there's backlog demand um, still for cars, cars, trucks, SUVs. So again, it, it seems that we're in this really weird stage where we've got high inflation, but we're not seeing essentially the consumer spending decline very substantially on those goods. And we're not seeing industrial activity really show any signs of a sharp drop. Okay, strength in labor, strength in industrial activity, counterbalanced by rising energy prices and this overall concern that we might be headed for a recession certainly looks like it is going to be a confusing several months ahead. Dr. Jason Miller, where can folks keep up with your writing and your thoughts here on economics and on the supply chain? Um, follow me on LinkedIn. I try to post Monday through Thursday, um, you know, something at least I'm seeing in some of the data that's just come out. All right. Well, Dr. Jason Miller, professor of economics there at uh, Michigan State University, certainly appreciate you jumping on and filling us in on what this data might mean for us. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. Arlen Suderman of Stonex will be joining us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Hi, I'm Brent Whitefoot, your Chief Agri-District Manager for Western Nebraska. I'll be at Husker Harvest Days, Lot 430, on September 13th through the 15th, talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions designed to fit your operational needs. Our grain storage, handling, and conditioning products are designed to last and help you save time and money every step of the way. Have questions? Give me a call at 308-440-4737 or check us out at agra.chiefind.com. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, for the most part, it's fairly quiet action across the grain trade here as we work through our Thursday session. Meantime, livestock showing some good support 
led by the lean hog sector. Now, overall, beans and bean oil weakening a little bit while wheat and corn are a little bit higher. The rail strike was at least temporarily averted as we saw overnight. Uh, an agreement was reached between the unions and the railroads, a tentative agreement, uh, possibly averting this first nationwide rail strike in 30 years. The agreement was needed essentially before midnight tonight to avert the strike. The agreement now goes to the rank and file of the union for ratification. The new deal reportedly offers an immediate 14.1% pay hike to make up for the time since 2019 that they've been working under the old agreement with additional pay hikes over the next several years. Now also quarter bean traders with this rail strike seemingly out of the picture now and averted can now focus on early harvest results over the next several weeks. This morning's export sales data dump from USDA showed some decent soybean and soy meal sales over the past several weeks, but nothing overly impressive for this time of year. Now, Argentina's peso sale that offered 200 pesos for each dollar of farmer soybean sales yielded a dump of 5.7 million metric tons of the oil seed onto the market in the first week of the policy, and China snatched up an estimated 20 cargoes of those newly sold soybeans for September and October shipment, reducing its need for U.S. supplies. Overall, though, global balance sheets and U.S. balance sheets are very tight moving forward for grains. It'll be interesting to see how the markets react as we work through harvest. Meantime, in livestock trade, fairly mixed there. Some decent numbers on the hog side for export sales. We have hogs trading uh, triple digits higher as we work through Thursday's session, while the cattle market is mixed with feeder cattle under some slight pressure. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. The markets are moving today. Taking a look at the Chicago Board of Trade, we've got some strength in both corn and soybeans and in soybean products. We've got a little bit of weakness today in the wheat market, and we are seeing livestock, live cattle in particular, move higher today, higher by a dollar to a dollar fifty across most of those contracts. Joining us with a market update is Arlen Suderman, chief commodities economist with Stonex, and Arlen. We got some export sales reports numbers this morning, didn't we? We got a lot of data dumped and trying to sort through it. Uh, obviously, when you have four weeks worth of data crossing marketing years for some of the crops, um, it, it does create somewhat of a puzzle to, to translate. And the bottom line is soybean sales were good during that period of time, about a half million metric tons more than what we saw in the daily reporting services in the flash reports. Soy meal sales were good as well. Um, the rest of the commodities, it was so-so, uh, nothing overly impressive. It's tough to compete in this environment with a strong dollar right now, and I think that really showed through. Um, the other thing that showed through is that when you look at the new marketing year now, uh, corn sales are lagging where we need to be for this time of year to start. To, so it's a slow start to the new marketing year for corn on export sales. Soybeans, it's a fast start, largely because the sales made previous to the new marketing year started, advanced sales, shall we say. Um, but it's, that's really slowed down in recent weeks. We should be seeing stronger sales now than what we 
are seeing. Um, and part of the reason it's starting to slow down is because we're seeing China buy a lot of beans from Argentina, something they don't ordinarily do that much of. But because Argentina is offering this special bonus right now of 200 pesos for every dollar of soybean sales by the farmer, that's brought on almost 6 million metric tons of soybeans in the first week dumped onto the market. Normally that would flow to the processors to be crushed for meal and oil exports, but China has been jumping in there and grabbing some of those, at least 20 cargos that we know of that they've purchased, so they've grabbed a big portion of it, and that's for September and October shipment. And that directly offsets what we normally would have shipped out of the United States. Arlen, if China is stepping in in a big way to buy whole beans out of Argentina rather than buying products, does this open the door for U.S. exporters to move meal over to China as we get deeper into winter or first quarter 23? Well, China doesn't like to import meal. They would prefer whole soybeans. Right now, their crushers, the latest week we have available, they crushed about 1.96 million metric tons of soybeans, which is above last year and above the five-year average. So they are strengthening their demand for meal. Meal stocks are very low right now. Uh, profitability is improving in the livestock sector. So they are crushing, and they, they need the soybeans overall. Um, but the problem is their crushing capacity, even at that level, they're only at about 68% of capacity. So they want to support that capacity. Now, having said that, they have reached an agreement with Brazil to buy meal from Brazil. Um, and the bottom line is they're trying to avoid doing business with the United States right now because they really don't like the United States very well. So they're diversifying their soybean purchases and they're opening the door if they can't get enough soybeans, if the U.S. shuts off soybeans, or if they block U.S. soybeans because of their upset over how we're handling Taiwan, that they can go to Brazil and get meal on top of the whole soybeans that they're getting from Brazil and Argentina. So they're doing things to diversify away from the United States. Now, to some extent, that opens the door for other non-China customers to come here. And particularly if Argentina is selling whole soybeans rather than crushing, that means there's a lot of other customers, non-China customers, who will be coming to the United States to try to get more of their meal from us. All right, Arlen, that would be good news for those soy crushers. Speaking of that, we have seen very strong margins for the past year for those soy crushing facilities. At USDA expects to see a drop in production here this next year. Arlen, what do you think? Does that uh, jibe to you? No, it, it really doesn't. I see an increase in crush overall, unless we just run so tight that the soybeans aren't available, and that's a possibility. It really comes down to what USDA is going to do with this soybean yield. They surprised everybody by dropping to 50.5 bushels per acre in their crop report that came out on Monday. If we drop any more, we're going to have to start rationing that demand, be it exports or be it crush. But we're at the same time, we're increasing crush capacity right now with an increasing demand for oil for producing renewable diesel. And the recent legislation passed by Congress reinforces that demand for renewable diesel. So I think the demand for oil is going to be increasing over the next year, supporting more crush activity at the expense of exports. So I think USDA is still too high on exports if we have a normal growing season in Brazil this year. And that's a big unknown with La Nina. The correlation between La Nina and Brazil production is very weak. It's very hard to predict what the production cycle is going to be. So we have to assume normal weather right now. If that's the case, then we'll see their production go up by about a billion bushels. That's a billion bushels that can be shipped to China instead of getting it from the United States. So we'll be leaning less on exports to to China and more on that domestic crush. I think USDA needs to push that crush number up above 2.3 billion bushels going forward, supporting domestic demand rather than exporting to China. Arlen, while we're on the topic of China, of course, that country is in the news today. Their President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are expected to get together. Are there any risks to the commodity markets as, as these two gentlemen meet? Yeah, absolutely. And you have to combine this with what's also happening in Congress, where we saw a bill 
discussed in committee now to provide support for Taiwan, and the wording of that bill is a real shift in policy for the United States away from the supporting one China um, mode where we say, okay, we'll help Taiwan defend itself toward getting more aggressive and providing the type of military aid that would help Taiwan be more aggressive in defending itself and recognize Taiwan as a separate entity. China is very angry about that, and if, in fact, that bill passes, we'll probably see some type of retribution, and there's some who fear that that could come out in trade. So what China's doing is working with Russia. They're also meeting, the, uh, President Xi Jinping this week is also meeting with the leader of India. He's met previously with the leaders of Brazil, and they're trying to work out ways that they can survive without getting commodities from the United States, which is why it's really important for us to diversify our domestic demand and our other foreign demand to make sure we can deal with these markets outside of our dependency on shipping to China. Arlen, thinking about the other commodities here in the U.S., I want to take our focus over to the ethanol market. We've seen production come down here over the past two weeks. Not surprising, gearing up for harvest. How do you feel the, the, that industry looks as we head into uh, late September? Yeah, there's a couple of keys to that. One was to avert a rail strike. That was a real concern going forward. And it looks like we may have averted that rail strike now because rail is necessary for moving that ethanol away from the plants. They'd only be have about eight to ten days worth of storage on the plants before they'd have to start shutting down, uh, depending on the plant. And so getting a, an aversion to that rail strike was very critical. Uh, the other part of that equation is being able to continue to see demand for gasoline for blending. If we go into a deeper recession, that would be a concern. It, it, we do draw some hope from the fact that ethanol is seen as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel, so longer term that's supportive. But I think to a great extent, the slowdown we've seen recently has been more of a seasonal in nature, doing some maintenance on the plant ahead of the new crop corn becoming available. And I think we'll see those ethanol blending or ethanol grind rates go up as the new crop corn starts to become available here in the weeks ahead. Arlen, I was down in Texas yesterday and was talking to a sorghum producer, and they were looking at the drought in Europe and the Europeans' unwillingness to buy GMO corn, and they were expecting to see sorghum sales to Europe jump up this year. Is that something you think seems reasonable? Yeah, and that's going to be somewhat difficult with uh, uh, the fact that we're looking at a much smaller sorghum crop this year as well. So we have a real deficit of feed in the Western High Plains feedlot states. Uh, between corn and sorghum, we're looking at about a 700 million bushel shortfall from year-ago levels. Um, I know we'd like to have plenty of demand, but meeting that demand may be difficult with the supply we have now in that region of, of the ag belt. But we are expecting uh, Europe to import more U.S. grain sorghum and possibly even soften its takes on GMO corn and maybe import some more GMO corn as well. Uh, Europe remembers hunger and more than we do here in the United States, and they're really looking to maybe turn a blind eye for the time being toward the GMO issue that's always been a concern of theirs, um, just to make sure people have food to eat. Um, so I think we can look for more exports to Europe in the months ahead. All right, Arlen, real quick before we let you go, the wheat market, a little ho-hum today. Where do you see that moving over the next week? Well, it really comes down to Ukraine and Russia. That's the breadbasket of the world right now. And we're looking at uh, this last year's production down about a third from the previous year because of the war. Planting of next year's winter wheat crop has begun, and acreage is expected to be down another third, and yields probably down from that as well. And even in Russia, where they had a bumper crop this last year, they're having trouble selling it. They're having trouble getting farm parts because of the sanctions. And so we're looking at possibilities reduced acreage there as well. So tightening up supply, some concerns that Russia may try to undermine the safe passage corridor in November uh, when it comes up from renewal. That's providing underlying support for this wheat. And we still have the lingering drought in the plains as we start to plant Lots. the hard red winter wheat crop. Lots going on. We'll be back. Is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We 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 are are the the foundation foundation fighting fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Hi, this is Jeff Schmidt. I'm your Chief Agri District Manager for Eastern Nebraska. I will be at Husker Harvest Days on Lot 430 on September 13th through the 15th. We'll be talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions that are designed to fit your operational needs. If you have any questions, give me a call, 308-440-8768, or check out our library of products at agra.chiefind.com. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who is deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkey. Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Over this past year, we have seen a series of crises and issues in the markets that pop up, become a concern, fade back away, and pop back up again. We've seen that with the value of the U.S. dollar. We've seen that with supply chains, and we have seen that with highly pathogenic avian influenza, the bird flu, HPAI. That has been really causing trouble for poultry producers across the country for all of 2022. Brian Ernest is the lead economist for animal protein over at the CoBank Knowledge Exchange. And now that we've had enough data to take a look at the impact of this HPAI outbreak, Brian has been running those numbers. He's been crunching the, the impact of that disease and at just the right time, because here over the past few weeks, we've seen a resurgence in the disease. Ohio, Minnesota, Utah, several other states across the country are starting to see this make its appearance again ahead of the winter. Brian, let's start with the impact of this disease so far, how many animals, how many poultry uh, livestock units have been culled so far? Well, so far and, and most recently, we've seen uh, um, flocks in Ohio, uh, roughly 3 million head pop are depopulated there. Uh, that brings the total to roughly 43 million uh, depopulated so far in 2022. And Brian, when we think about that 43 million depopulated so far this year, that is a, a much smaller number than we saw back in 2014, 2015. But the impact of this outbreak has been fairly profound. What have prices done over the past year here for poultry products? Yeah, it's interesting when you compare the two scenarios, because we are seeing some different factors at play this time around, right? It's um, still a, a largely the impact has been with egg layers. Um, the, the largest uh, depopulations have been with the uh, egg production, um, and as a result, we've seen uh, egg prices skyrocket. Uh, you know, in the spring time frame, uh, went to, to historic levels there. Um, and, and one of the dynamics that we see for the egg industry is typically demand kind of subsides a little bit in the summer, but it's it's really uh, been a, a difficult situation from a procurement standpoint there. Um, and as a result, really seeing some some strong egg prices uh, continue to, to show up. Um, the other side of it, looking at turkey producers, we're really seeing some strong prices, both in whole birds and that fresh tom breast meat uh, into delis. And, you know, as you look out further to the future, Brian, we're not too terribly far away from Thanksgiving and the focus will turn to turkeys nationwide. What's your expectation on pricing in that sector as we head into fall? Well, I think from a retail standpoint, we'll, t we'll still see some, uh, some of the, the major players trying to figure out how they're going to make that mix uh, fit and, and have enough availability for, uh, you know, holiday offerings for consumers. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to show a, a really attractive price point on turkeys this year, considering what wholesale values are doing. Uh, for whole birds, they're sitting around $1.80 right now per pound. Um, and typically, uh, the retailer is able to get something done around a dollar per pound. So, um, you know, a, a much stronger price environment there likely leads to, you know, less really strong featuring um, for consumers this year. Brian, as you think about these record prices, both for eggs and for turkey, is are these price levels high enough to drive some expansion in either of those two sectors? It, you know, it's it's difficult to say how that's going to evolve moving forward. Um, both industries have had some struggles in the past with expansion and contraction. Um, you could probably uh, make the argument that egg producers expanded the flock a little bit too far uh, here back in 2018-2019. Uh, we had over 340 million layers, uh, and typically that level sits around where the U.S. Uh, human population is. Um, and so there is still some room for expansion there. Um, I think, a, a, you know, kind of a cloudy path includes the expectation that we're going to need more cage-free production to meet the corporate commitments uh, for for, uh, for cage-free use for consumers there. 
Uh, from a Turkey standpoint, uh, I do think there's room for expansion, um, but there's still some complications with, uh, uh, you know, with animal disease elsewhere for turkey producers. Um, and it's almost like they're, they need a unified uh, track to, to move forward for, uh, for expanding turkey production. Brian, thinking back to 2014, when HPAI broke and it started to spread, we saw a lot of our export partners close the doors to U.S. poultry. This past outbreak, I heard about that a lot less. Did we still see export volumes maintained through this last outbreak? Well, that's, you know, that's key, too. I think when you look at uh, the sectors primarily affected, you saw the production side affected on egg and turkeys, but not so much for broiler producers. Um, and the last time around, we saw the, the export environment heavily impacted because some of the major export destinations placed blanket bans on all U.S. poultry, so that included chicken from anywhere in the U.S. This time around, what we're seeing is more of a, a targeted approach from a countywide or state-level um, ban, and because HPAI has not been detected in some of the major broiler-producing regions, um, we're still seeing open access to, um, you know, like China, uh, for instance, showing that um, they're still willing and, and very much, uh, uh, you know, capable of of, um, uh, of importing U.S. poultry. So um, that is a key difference, and we're seeing, as a result, items like leg quarters, dark meat, it's very well supported in the marketplace as a result of, of open access. Now, the export marketplace, of course, is tough with the value of the U.S. dollar being where it is at such an elevated level near a 20-year high. Brian, is that going to create some headwinds as we get through 2022 and getting more of this product moved off our shores? There's potential there. I, I do think that, um, you know, that uh, the, the potential for a, a disparity in, in um, dollar valuation could disrupt uh, this really strong export environment. But it really seems like from a demand standpoint, uh, all of that is being ignored at the, at the moment, that uh, we're still seeing really good movement in the export markets. And the other thing that I think is, is beneficial there is we've seen pretty strong diversification among all protein groups in terms of the export markets that they have access to and, and where the product is going. Uh, really all strong right. here in the U.S. poultry. Fantastic opportunity there for U.S. poultry and meat producers, largely speaking. That's Brian Ernest of CoBank. Folks, thanks for listening to AOA. Tune in tomorrow. We'll have more for you. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. This week, Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board joined us, and we talked about how DDGs have become commonplace in the pork industry. You know, the renewable fuel standard came on board in 2007. Um, suddenly, corn was used for other things that it hadn't traditionally been used for, at least in, in uh, not in such great quantity. As a product of that, uh, distiller's grains became available to us uh, as a feedstuff. Um, I would no longer classify uh, dis dried distiller's grains or solubles, DDGS, as a, a non-traditional feedstuff for pig, uh, for pigs. We commonly use it as part of our swine diet today. That was Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board reflecting on the partnership between pork and corn. We'll be back Wednesday, October 5th with the next edition of the Monthly Grind.